So this afternoon, um, we're going to look at contraception and the natural law. And contraception, um, before we actually look at the notes, I kind of do need to acknowledge where you've come from. And I think it's important for you to be clear that in taking on being a Catholic and being a Catholic priest, you don't need to be taking on a pretense that this has been your life all along. Um, so that, particularly the issue of contraception, that therefore there's no reason to pretend what the church teaches is what you've lived in your past. And I think you need to be clear of that. I need, you need to be clear that I'm clear of that so that you don't have to sit there and pretend, well, this is what I've always thought, this is what I've always lived. Um, but um, contraception is a thing at a practical level um, that I believe everything I'm doing in the parish is largely a waste of time in as much as this isn't being lived by my parishioners. Because there are so many of my parishioners for whom I know they have certain walls where they've kind of said that the gospel just doesn't get in here. And that what happens in the bedroom, that's nothing to do with the priest, nothing to do with Jesus. Um, and in as much as we accept that and buy into it, um, there are all kinds of ramifications that go with that. that there's no point in talking about confession, examination of life, reform, repentance, if we're able to say that, well, there are these sections of my life that aren't relevant. You see, earlier on you were saying about marriage. Um, yes, we know it's for making children mm. in its crudest sense. But I mean, I want to prayer book, the old English, the Anglican one, talks about knowing each other in, in acts of love. Um, which are not necessary. How does it handle older couples who are not procreating? Well, that's, I think, you know, this, but this, I think that's what we're going to look at. Yeah, um, you see, I think this is the problem. Mm -hmm. I would say this is the problem I have with um, a general rule because I think HIV, other sexually transmitted, may well be present, prevented because people, if they're not, they're still going to do it. I'd rather them do it with a condom than, than risk disease. But we can argue this. I know yeah. the Catholic doctrine, well, it's... But, but I was thinking at a practical it. level, I think that's um, selling people a lie, because a, a condom reduces the risk, but it doesn't remove it. No, and it doesn't. And if you... Sorry, before we go into this discussion, yeah. what you were saying I found very helpful. Were you going to... Um, Expand on that, or had where, you made where your was point? I think I've made my point, right. um, but that I think that, that at a practical level we can't just be content to let people be where they are with this, um, and it's difficult. So I preached on it in my last parish, and um, a sermon isn't an easy context to talk about contraception because it's it's so the whole congregation, but we don't really have other forms. Mm -hmm. So you can with youth, I 
talk about chastity in Parashi Youth Group. Um, but that's not everybody. And um, But I don't think we can let it drop just because it's difficult. Um, and we need to look for contexts in which we can indicate that this is a live issue. That it's not just, well, I know that was said in 1968, but we've moved on now. That the big thing, kind of my starting point I'm gonna, gonna make is that we've had two generations now pass since um, the, the sexual revolution of the 60s to see what does society look like if we live this out. Um, and it's self-evident that this is not a better society. This isn't a place of happier families, of better relationships. Um, and yet that's exactly what we were promised would be the case. Um, and so what the church teaches is that what we've seen unravel and the unhappiness that's unraveled at a society-wide level is because it's not right in the individual couple and it's not right in the individual act. And that if you pull it apart in one act, you pull it apart in a marriage and it falls apart in society. Now let me say that a bit more slowly and more specifically. Um, and the notes I've given you here are in a logical order, but I'm going to leap first to page six. Because I want to start with really the contextualising this. Because we all know that the church's teaching is so far removed from society um, that we do need, I need to articulate why it's important. So at the top of this page six, I've got a little box there. So this actually, page six and page seven are a double-sided handout I've given in my parish uh, and on other occasions, kind of summarising this. So that top box, there's three columns there. What contraception promised, what, in contrast, Pope Paul VI warned would happen if contraception was used in society, and in contrast, what um, natural family planning uh, does instead. Um, now, what contraception promised, um, I think you're all older than I am, so you'd be around. We were there, but we can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I was seven and six years old. I was at school. But I'm old enough to remember. I can remember at school somehow contraception being talked about in sexual yeah. education classes mm -hmm. as a new thing, and that they told us certain things that were good about this. We were told there would be happier marriages, that there would be happier families. So as I've put here, one, improved husband-wife relationships, that of course it would be improved, that you wouldn't have the burden of children. Um, sex, that there would be less divorce and less family stress. Third, that women would be freed from male domination because they'd be masters of their own body. And fourth, that there'd be less abortion and less teenage pregnancy. 
And that list just looks laughable now when you think about what's actually happened. But what's important to note, looking back, is that this is what Pope Paul VI, who's often referred to as a prophet in this regard, in his encyclical Humanae Vitae said. He said, what would contraception, and if he uses a society, what would happen? Well, he said, first, there would be a barrier in the relationship between a husband and wife. He said, second, there would be more divorce, more promiscuity, and less family stability. And third, there would be an increase in women being seen as sexual objects available for the satisfying of men. And fourth, that there would be more abortion. And when he said these things, he was mocked. Um, don't know if you know, but this was his last encyclical, and it said that it it broke his heart, the reaction and vitriol that he endured um, for a long time afterwards. Now there is an alternative, natural family planning. Um, so it's not, it's not that the church is saying, well, you just have sex and see what happens, and it's all the roll of the dice. Um, natural family planning a woman charts her fertility. She monitors when she's fertile, when she isn't. And that with the benefit of modern science, that can be done very accurately. It can be, um, statistically speaking, as accurate, if not more, than the, the pill. Um, and that is, that is an area which, when we were certainly taught about contraception at school, Natural, natural that they used to call it the rhythm method or natural. This was always, always disparaged as a method. Mm -hmm. It's unreliable, it's unsafe, you shouldn't do it. That was that was the prevailing orthodoxy that would have been in 76, 77. Now the rhythm method presumed that a woman had a regular cycle in terms of the days of her week. It didn't involve her monitoring her symptoms. And so therefore it relied on the science <laughs> of its era, but it wasn't as accurate as what's available now. Um, condoms, so we know the ancient Romans and ancient Egyptians, I think even, um, used leather condoms. So a condom isn't a new device, um, though it's more scientifically accurate. Um, there's a knowledge of science here as well, um, and that there can be a science working with nature or working to thwart nature. So natural family planning, what does it achieve instead? First, increased communication between a husband and a wife. So actually a husband and wife are forced to communicate about where she is in her cycle, where, whether tonight is possible. Um, secondly, with this, um, statistically, there is less divorce. And thirdly, a respect for a woman's bodily cycle that views her as a whole. Um, you know, I've read in literature, but I've also had couples that have reverted, um, left the contraceptive world and moved to natural family planning, and the husband has said, I look at my, my wife differently now. I relate to her differently now. Um, in a good way. So maybe now that page. I think by the way you've got out a fourth. Go on. Uh, 
an advantage that is for both husband and wife growth in self-control yeah. Um, yeah it's often struck me as ironic that fruits of the spirit are often listed love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness self-control is the last of those fruits you never hear anything about self-control you hear a lot about love, joy and peace yes. self-control is apparently not one of the fruits of the spirit but one of the problems with artificial conception <laughs> is that it farms out self-control to yes. a device, doesn't it? Yes. And it, it sort of exempts you of that of growth, growth in that virtue. Mm. And although I didn't list it there, I am about to come on to that point because John Paul II, in his theology of the body, self-mastery, which is also the language we get in the Catechism, that if you're not master of yourself in terms of self-control in this regard then you're just the slave of your passions um, or the slave of your partner. But you, there's a, a whole self-control, self-mastery that, that's gained in this. The little section there, contraception and divorce. Um, studies in the USA have shown that couples who use natural family planning have a divorce rate of between 2 and 4% whereas the average divorce rate in America is about 50%, which is a colossal difference. Um, and those studies aren't just Catholics, that's including because some people use NFP for ecological reasons, uh, there'd be some evangelicals as well, um, so a lot of Catholics, but it wasn't a religious study, it's a, a practice study. And Janet Smith, um, who's uh, a moral, American moral theologian, attributes this difference, the statistical difference, to two things. First, she says NFP's ability to foster mutual self-giving and the virtue of self-mastery gained through the use of NFP. She puts it this way. Couples using NFP must bear together the burden of abstaining. Both must cooperate for the method to work. So that is going to change the relationship. And secondly, she notes the damage caused to marriage by contraception, because she says an act that is not open to procreation is not truly unitive. In fact, it is disunitive. Contraception violates the unitive as well as the procreative meaning of conjugal intercourse. So in summary, when the procreative and unitive meanings are sep directly separated in the act, this separation will tend towards a separating and weakening in the whole man-woman relationship. And just uh, in quotation from Paul VI there, that contraception will lead to marital infidelity, general lowering of moral standards, the young exposed to temptation, Men would forget the reverence due to a woman who would become a mere instrument for the satisfaction of his own desires. Um, and then he added also about government power and coercion imposing this, which of course also we've seen. So I think that before looking at the detail, the general picture, that we were warned this would be bad for society, and it's played out that way. And I think what that means is we need to return and we need, in our talking to our congregations, to package it this way. That actually, I'm, I'm glad I wasn't a priest in 1968, because I know it 
was really, really difficult. And those priests that continued to teach the truth were either ridiculed or sidelined and treated as if what they were doing was just imposing a burden on people. Whereas two generations on, I think it's much clearer and much easier to see that what we are offering is a way of living and a way that brings life to marriages, to couples. Um, it's not just a burden we're bringing to people. <clears throat> okay, I want to move to page four. <clears throat> And consider, before we, again, think of some, in a sense, the general picture here, um, this phrase, open to life, that sex must be open to life. And the point I want to make to you is that this is not what the church says. Um, um, so the Latin phrase in... Um, the encyclical Humana Vitae is per se destinatus. And you might say, well, it's fairly obvious why we don't hear sermons on per se destinatus. <laughs> um, the problem with the word open, um, which the at first translation of this that was available in the English world was produced by the CTS. Um, and most people, the translation they came across was open. And many priests attempting to be faithful used the word open. And I've heard sermons talking about being open to life in a way that actually isn't what the church teaches. Um, so let's go through what I've said on the page here. So, open to life is serious mistranslation. And then I've quoted that mistranslation line. Each and every marital act must remain open to the procreation of human life. The above was an early popular translation of the 1968 text, but is seriously misleading. The Latin translated above as open is per se destinatus, i.e. retain its natural potential or no impairment to its natural capacity or more loosely, not closed. Oh, could you just repeat the uh, retain? It's natural potential. Potential, yeah. Which I, I've. Natural. Um, oh, right, sorry, yeah. 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 yeah, okay. Now, what's the difference? Well, I said that per se destinatus doesn't imply a subjective attitude, whereas open does. Um, it doesn't mean the couple must be desiring a child with each act of intercourse. It doesn't mean that the couple are not planning an abortion if they conceive. Um, so I've sometimes heard it said as, well, we're open to life and that we wouldn't ever have an abortion. Well, actually, that, that isn't what the text means. Now, yes, you shouldn't be planning an abortion, but that isn't what the text is meaning when it, it's talking about this. It also doesn't mean you're open to life and that you want a child. That, that isn't what it means. 
So it's not subjective. It's not an attitude. But in terms of what it's objectively describing, it also doesn't imply that the couple are fertile at this moment and likely to conceive. And this is the thing I've, I've heard said falsely many times. The NFP is permissible because it doesn't really work and therefore the act is open to life. That we might conceive because NFP is not really that accurate and therefore we're open to life. That isn't what the church means. So NFP now is much more accurate than the rhythm method of the 50s. Um, we can conceive that 50 years from now, um, with other tests, our knowledge of a woman's fertility during her cycle will get more and more accurate. If it becomes 100% accurate, it's still open in the sense that the church Okay? So it's not open in the sense that it's not really, we don't, it doesn't work. Yeah. Two examples of sexual acts that remain per se destinatus to human procreation. First, an act where the couple are too old to be fertile. Or an act where the woman is at a time in her cycle where she is not fertile that the sexual act is still, as an act, in the nature of it, ordered to new life. Even though, with a couple too old to conceive, you know it's not going to achieve that, but that is the type of act it is, that is what the act is per se destinatus ordered towards, and you've not changed it. So the open isn't something subjective. It also objectively um, can include a couple that are infertile, including also, therefore, a couple that are not fertile today and know they're not fertile today because of the time of the month. Back to my notes here. In contrast, some acts in, are inherently unapt for procreation and are thus per se destinatus, not per se destinatus, ordered to life. Anal sex, oral sex, masturbation, either alone or mutual, homosexual acts. None of those in the nature of the act is ordered to life. It's just not in the act for it to be ordered to life. It's a different kind of act. It's an act that doesn't respect the nature of what sex is about. And that's why it's problematic morally. Bottom of the page there, I've kind of summarized this. Open is subjective and refers to the motive of the couple. Whereas retain its natural potential is objective and refers to the act itself.
Then I've quoted Janet Smith. The distinctions to be made here are at times subtle, but they are nonetheless real and important. And an entire society and the health of the family within that society can collapse on a subtle distinction. Um, and there are truths here that many people, good parishioners, may not grasp at the level of the Latin, but they do nonetheless somehow sense that actually we're doing something here that is changing the act, that is thwarting what it's about, or not. You, that you can grasp that without knowing the technicality. But as clergy, you do need to know the technicality. So those are two kind of big prefaces before actually looking positively at what we're describing here. So a general preface of that this is important for society, important for us as a church, a preface of what open means or doesn't mean, because something of that misunderstanding I'm sure is most of you have arrived here today with, so that I want to kind of push that aside to indicate that what we're actually talking about is something different. In the sense of understanding which is captured at note 7 at the bottom of page 4, I think it's quite important, um, particularly if you're speaking with couples. Right. I'm going to read that out. So footnote 7. The partial use of either oral or anal sex as part of foreplay in the build-up to a complete normal marital act would not need to be seen as an act, would rather, would need to be seen as an act of foreplay rather than an act in isolation. This would not be the same as an act of oral or anal sex brought to climax or practiced independently of a normal marital act. So the fact that things that are happening in foreplay that are a preparation to the complete marital act is different if those things happen independent of a complete marital act. You can imagine that's a level of detail uh, I wouldn't include <laughs> in, in a sermon on a Sunday. Um, but but we are saying we are committed. Yes. Hmm. If the end result is sexual intercourse to conceive a child. Nope. No, no, not no, to conceive no, no, a child. No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. Well, so That's the desire to conceive a child is not what we're concerned about. We're not talking about being open to life in that motive sense. But anal intercourse that proceeds to, in the same bedroom, a normal marital acts. That's if that's what they want to do. That's fine. If they mention that in the confessional, that's yeah. where that's where you will get it, and yes. you won't get it often. But and what are you going to say that you know, assuming it is part of the full mm -hmm. as, as understood in some, would you tell them that it's not a sin in itself if it's foreplay towards the, or would you just pass over it? And, and that's that's the context. Um, I've come across it not often, so someone confesses it, you might ask a question to clarify that actually that isn't sinful. And you would tell them that? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, Particularly if it's troubling their conscience. And, yeah. 
troubling their conscience, potentially troubling their marriage. Mm-hmm. So one of the two might be wanting to do that and one is enduring it thinking it's a sin. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, to know it's not a sin and therefore it can be gone along with for the sake of the marriage um, is, is important to know. That said, we'll talk about confession another day, but there you have 30 seconds with someone in confession. Um, you can't say everything, but sometimes you have to realise this might be the only time this person will ever have a chance to get some guidance. And so maybe it's better to say something brutally and briefly than not at all. And that's a judgment call we have to make rapidly, and sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it wrong. Um, so one of the prayers I say at the end of hearing confessions every time um, is an old prayer. Um, do you all know Father Z's blog, the American? Mm-hmm. Um, it's on his website. Um, but that prays that God will remedy the damage that my my words have done in confession because whether my attitude has seemed indifferent or cold or bored um, all of which I am on many occasions or my words have actually been so incoherent or whatever else to pray that the damage be undone because you can't approach somebody outside of confession anyway that's we'll look at confession later so <coughs> Now, before we look at the specifics and the, the kind of questions we'll look at, any comments or points? Really helpful, actually, rather yeah. than you explain that. It is yeah. really helpful simply because when things are put over out, out there, as it were, there is a caricature understanding of what Catholic Church teaches. Mm-hmm. And it's basically, well, doesn't really like sex at all, does it? In any shape or form. And yeah. that sort of detail does challenge those that sort of false accusations mm-hmm. against the church's teaching. Mm-hmm. Even I, if you're not going to preach about it. <laughs> yeah. But I would encourage you to read at least something of John Paul II's Theology of the Body in some of its popular brief incarnations, and that you have there just an incredibly positive view of relationships, of what the church believes about sex, but also how it can be a truly life-giving and marriage-enriching thing. Can you recommend a particular document or um, Christopher West's big thing, um, so if you just um, plug into Amazon Theology of the Body, Christopher West will come up. There are different width versions. Um, Actually, any of them that come up are good. They're just, um, and I don't think I've come across uh, a damaging book. Christopher West is sometimes, well, often criticised in his earlier writings, especially for minimising the role of concupiscence. So the fact that actually, although sex is good and beautiful, what we bring to it has desires that need this training and self-mastery that John Paul II talks about. Um, 
to look that way. Uh, and that there's a variety of different size books to go for. Um, I think Thomas Percy, or Tony Percy, um, I'm trying to remember, I think that's his name, wrote quite a small thing, Theology of the Body Made Simple, which is quite brief and quite accessible. Um, so, let's start at the beginning now, page one. So we were looking this morning about the nature of an action, the ends within it, and how reason can discern that. So I want us now to think about ends more specifically. Top of the page there, a little recap point. So a human act is judged good if it is in keeping with the end of that activity. An unaided reason can discern the nature of the activity the end of that activity, and thus the corresponding moral law that governs its proper use. So, what is the end of marriage and of sex? As I've said there, um, there is a debate within the Catholic Church about whether there is one end that has a number of meanings, or whether there is a hierarchy of ends. Um, and at this moment in history, you might say, one way of reading that is to say, actually, you just have different terminology describing the same reality, which I think would basically be my position. Others would say there's a development of doctrine happening where a shift from a hierarchy of ends is being replaced by talk of a single good that has multiple meanings, all of which have to be respected. Anyway, read through what I've said there on the page. So that block in italics there. Orthodox scholars, so that's with orthodox with a small o, not as in Greeks. Orthodox scholars differ in the precise details of their analysis and of the ends or goods of marriage. The traditional approach distinguishes different ends and ranks them in hierarchy. In contrast, some modern scholars argue Church teaching has developed on this point and now speak of a single good in marriage. Regardless, in each scheme, to thwart one end, or in different terminology, to thwart one meaning, is to thwart the nature of the marital act itself. Then said, it, it can be morally permissible to seek one end while not actualizing the other end, i.e. to seek the unitive in the absence of the procreative. It is not morally permissible to directly thwart one end, i.e. to directly thwart the procreative meaning inherent in the marital act. So to spell that out, first the traditional terminology. So here, marriage and the marital act have a hierarchy of ends. So this is what we find in um, the Catechism of the Council of Trent and in the Code of Canon Law of 1917. And that hierarchy would say, first, the procreation and raising of children, and no Christian children. Second, the union of the couple. And third, 
the remedying of concupiscence, see, to, to not burn with passion, as St. Paul warns us. Um, and it's not a very glorious thing to say marriage is to avoid you burning with passion. Um, but actually there is obviously a practicality there. St. Paul wouldn't be talking about it. It's 1662 introduction to marriage service. <laughs> As a remedy of sin. The reasons for marriage. Mm. Yeah, for those who can't get married. Yeah. But the notion, that, that first point, procreation and raising of children. Now, the notion that marriage exists in order that children might be raised up and the sacrament of marriage exists that Christian children might be raised up because God wants, over the centuries, he wants more additions to the family of God and that this is the purpose of marriage is very far removed from our modern understanding. And we need to distinguish here, before we go on any further, the difference between the motive of the individual and the nature of what marriage is in itself. So the Catechism of the Council of Trent notes that um, Jacob approached Rachel because of her beauty. And Trent notes that Scripture doesn't condemn Jacob for doing that. He doesn't say, you know, how base of him to be that focused on her beauty. Um, rather than being concerned about the offspring and raising of children. Um, no, that that's an acceptable motive. But to take that motive into marriage, marriage exists before you come along. Marriage is a reality, an institution that exists before you come along. And you need to enter into it according to what it is about. And that marriage is as an institution, the place for the sake of society where children are born and are raised. That's what its function is at a society level, which usually won't be your motive in getting married. Your motive will be her beautiful eyes or whatever. Um, but what you're choosing to enter into is an institution that has its own dynamic and you need to respect its own dynamic, its own nature, its own ends. If you're going to find fulfillment there, if you're going to, if your wife's going to find fulfillment there. So, traditional terminology lists those ends and ranks them. Um, secondly, though, the terminology of humanae vitae doesn't rank them. Um, and in fact, it doesn't talk about ends. It talks about meanings instead. And it says the procreative and unitive meanings are inseparable, with these two not listed in any apparent order. So you have a shift in terminology there. Thirdly, um, there's a scholar called Germain Griset, an American, who I, I mentioned earlier, didn't I? Um, he says marriage consists of a single good that contains both a unitive and procreative dimension. And he would say this is following Humana Vitae's shift of terminology. Um, so 
sticking with my page here. Natural law holds that unnatural acts are wrong. The nature of the marital act is that it is an act of mutual self-giving, inherently and inseparably ordered to both union and procreation. Contraception is unnatural because it deliberately thwarts the meaning of the act. Next section, violating the meaning of the marital act. A, concerning union, to seek sex without lifelong union is to oppose the unitive purpose God has established in sex. B, concerning procreation, not every marriage bears fruit in children, but every marriage remains ordered towards children. And a marriage that intended to never have children would actually not be a marriage. Similarly, not every sexual act leads to children, but every sexual act remains ordered towards children. To directly oppose the procreative meaning by artificial contraception is to directly violate the meaning of the marital act. So one of the reasons when we prepare couples for marriage is that, that we talk about children being part of what marriage is is because they can't take those vows meaningfully otherwise. And one of the grounds for a declaration of nullity would be for a couple to say, or one of the two more likely to say, actually, I always intended there would never be children. She wanted children, but I never did. And I never intended us to have children that's actually being closed to marriage from the beginning. So that's grounds for annulment? Yep, because it's not a marriage. They, he, he may have said the words, but he didn't mean them. Yeah, um, so it's not a marriage. Isn't there? Yeah. It's just necessary for the sacrament. Yeah. Right, right. Should we take five minutes as a pause there? Mm -hmm. um.